that song that it's your breath in our lungs. You give to all mankind life and breath and everything. You're not served by human hands as though you needed anything, as we looked at just a few weeks ago in Acts 17. But Lord, we pray that the breath that you have gifted us with, we would just pour it back out to you, that we would live lives of worship, praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving to you and you alone. But Lord, this morning, um, just as pastor of this church, as, as really a member of our society, our church comes to you grieved, um, hurting, confused, just over the senseless uh, violence in Nashville at the Covenant School. And Lord, um, we just want to come and, and more than anything, more than trying to explain this, um, we just come grieved, yearning for you to return, yearning for you to make all things right again. Your word says that the world will mock us. They say, where is the promise of his coming? We also know in your word in James, you told us to be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. But we know from Revelation, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And we know the last chapter says, he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. So God, we're just pained and, and confused and frustrated and um, yearning for you to come, for you to return, for you to make all things new again. Lord, we pray for those in the Nashville community. We pray for those in our church. You would comfort them. You would be the God of all comfort as we know that you are. Lord, now as we turn to the reading and the preaching of your word, we are just so grateful for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thankfully for the last several months, we've had to just slowly walk through his ministry. This man who hated you and hated all who stood for you became the greatest preacher, um, greatest missionary that we, we have chance to see. Lord, I pray that this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 20, that you would continue to stir us up, stir our faith, build our faith through the example of your apostle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat for me. Um, if, if you weren't here last weekend or maybe, maybe you're new with us, my name is Andrew McClure. I'm the lead pastor here at CBC Richmond Hill. We were not here last weekend, my family and I. Um, in fact, we were at a marriage retreat. I think Coleman might have referenced it, but my wife Annie and I got away with no kids. Um, yeah, that's worth clapping. <laughs> what that means is that we were able to have a conversation. That's it. I mean, that was, that was the gift um, without anybody going, Daddy, 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 you know, Mommy, Mommy. Um, but, man, we had such a great time just being, being reminded of the primacy of marriage, being reminded of how important it is in every season, but especially in a season like ours, to be intentional, to continue and invest in one another. Because many of you are probably in seasons of life like, like we are, because I, I know you are because there's a thousand kids here every Sunday. But, um, man, we got, we got baseball and we got chores and we got homework and we got so much going on that it's so easy to let our spouse kind of become second fiddle, right, to all of those things. And we were just reminded this weekend how important it is to continue to invest in one another. So we're just grateful, grateful for you all letting us get away and slip away. Um, but I'll tell you one other thing I'm grateful for. While we were gone, um, it was easy for me to kind of detach and, and to not be here with our church family. Um, but we really missed it. And uh, that was deeply encouraging for us. Uh, we, we've been doing this thing, what, for nine months? I don't know how long it's been. Um, every Sunday, my wife for those third through fifth graders, you know, every Sunday serving our kids here for two services, exhausted, tired, you know, every Sunday. But yet we were all missing being here. So that was really encouraging for us. But there's a couple things that we learned that I wanted to share with you from this marriage retreat. Um, specifically, the, the biggest takeaways came from um, an example 
and an exhortation, okay? And if you know anything about me and my preaching, you know that's what we're going to see in our text today. So I'm going to tie that in here in a second. But first thing we saw was an example. So while we were there, we had this crazy privilege of reconnecting with an older couple that we haven't seen in more than four years, okay? So let me give you the context. When we were cross-cultural missionaries to North Africa, 2013, we were defeated, crushed, burned out, exhausted, really contemplating if we wanted to even do this thing called Christian ministry anymore. And our agency, missions agency, sent over this counseling couple. They own a counseling practice in northwest Georgia um, to do an intensive with us. This was that couple. And it's not an exaggeration to say that we're still in full-time ministry because of the investment that that couple made in us that week. And for 12 years, we've kept up with them here and there. We've stayed with them a few times. And, and we haven't seen them in more than four years. And they came and saw us that Saturday night at this retreat. We just had two hours of just catching up and sitting with them. And, and they've been in full-time ministry for more than 40 years. They've been married for 40 years. And, you know, I just walked away from our time with them, just, just built up, just encouraged. You, do you have people in your life like that where it's just, they just encourage you? They just build you up in your faith as you kind of witness their example. So that was one of our, our, our biggest takeaways. It wasn't even retreat-focused. The second takeaway, though, was definitely the exhortation. So we had our, our theme was thriving marriage, thriving family, right? Kind of get it. Okay, thriving marriage, thriving family. So we spent a couple sessions talking about what a thriving marriage is, a couple sessions talking about how to create the right structures and routines and rituals to kind of create a thriving family. And, uh, man, the content was great. Uh, it's just nice to hear from people who have adult children that are still alive, you know, with kids that, that you can make it, that it's going to pay off, that all this consistency that we're trying to lay down in our home is going to pay off. It was just really encouraging. So, y'all, we, we left that retreat just built up in our relationship as, as father, as mother, built up in our relationship as husband and as wife. Um, but if you, if you know me, you know I came back Monday pretty eager to jump back into our text, to jump back into the book of Acts. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 20. And what I saw as I studied Acts chapter 20 is exactly what I took away from our retreat this past weekend. An, an example and an exhortation. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's third missionary journey is coming to a close. In fact, Paul's missionary endeavors as it regards the book of Acts are coming to a close. So in A.D. 34, Paul was radically transformed, converted, and saved on the road to Damascus, right? We saw that in Acts chapter 9. That's A.D. 34. Acts chapter 20 is about A.D. 56. So you, you mathematicians in there, there's 22 years, okay? For 22 years, the Apostle Paul has been traveling and, and grinding and preaching the gospel and being faithful and building up all of these churches. But in Acts chapter 20, that time for church planting is coming to a close. Acts chapter 20 is a transition because the next eight chapters of the book of Acts is Paul getting arrested, Paul being on trial, and Paul defending himself to both Jews and Gentiles and, and, and Roman kings. So what does he do? Acts chapter 20, he knows he's never going to see these churches again. He knows he's never going to, to preach to them again. So he calls the leaders, specifically of the church of Ephesus, to himself. And he leads them with an example and an exhortation. So let's read verse 1 together. We're going to read the first six verses. After the uproar, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Pachycus and Trophimus. 
These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. All right, so I just listed a ton of geographical locations. Let's throw our map back up on the screen and kind of retrace some Paul's steps. And I won't spend a lot of time here, but Paul had been in Ephesus for about three years. So now when he's leaving Ephesus, he goes to Macedonia, which is, which is Italy, towards Philippi, okay? So he crosses over, goes into Philippi. From Macedonia, or from Philippi, he goes down to Greece, which is the boot of Italy, down there in Athens and in Corinth, where he stays for three months. Paul, we notice from 2 Corinthians, wanted to sail straight from Corinth back towards Jerusalem, but he learns of this assassination plot against his life, and he goes back up to Macedonia. Now, this really has nothing to do with the sermon. I just find it really interesting. In Macedonia, there in Philippi, he picks up Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke, in Acts chapter 16, was left in the city of Philippi, and we know he picks him back up to take him the rest of his journey, because in Acts chapter 20, we begin to see things like we and us written within the narrative. So, Paul leaves Philippi and goes to Troas. He's in Troas for seven days, and in typical Paul fashion, you give him a few days, he starts preaching. So let's pick back up in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech. Okay, there's some biblical precedents for what I do here every Sunday. Until midnight. Praise God we haven't done that yet. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were sitting gathered, and a young man named Eutychus. Sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul went down and bent over him. And take him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed, his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while later until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. All right, let's take another pause. So I know I haven't gotten to the example or the exhortation yet, but we gotta, we got to address poor little Eutychus, okay? I feel for Eutychus because could you imagine being forever recorded in the most popular book to ever be printed for the sole reason of falling asleep during the Apostle Paul's sermon, you know, out of a window to the point of death? And, and the reason I feel for him, too, is because uh, according to the Greek language, he's probably 8 to 14 years old. This kid's up till midnight, you know? On fire for Jesus, hungry. Like he wants to learn 8 to 14. Uh, it says that the room was lit by these lamps, which means it was, it was warm in there. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? I'm not going to name any names. I know who you are, okay? You're just thankful we don't sleep, you know, on a third-story windowsill here every, every Sunday. But I, I make jokes, and I know that tons of pastors encourage me to make jokes about this text, but I find a lot of comfort that uh, people fell asleep during the Apostle Paul's sermons. I don't take it personally that if you nod off during one of mine, okay? But in all seriousness, the reason I don't take it um, too, too personally is because, man, like, I understand that every Sunday is, is really one of the first days of the week you guys have gotten to still, right? I mean, you, you work and you, you run all throughout the week, so I get it. I don't want you to, to feel bad or feel guilty. Now some of you are, like, pinching yourself trying to stay awake, but just hang in there, okay? So Eutychus falls out of the third-story window, and Luke is a physician, by trade, by vocation, Luke's a physician. So when Luke says he died, what he means is he, di he died. Like he literally was raised from the dead, just like Elijah, just like Elisha, just like Jesus, just like Peter rises Dorcas in the book of Acts. Paul raises little Eutychus from the dead, and he keeps on preaching until daybreak. 
Isn't that amazing? I love that about Paul. But here's another little interesting fact for you. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. Okay, what's really interesting about verse 7 is that this is actually the first scriptural witness of the church gathering together on Sunday. Usually they've been gathering on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, but here they're gathered on the first day of the week. So you want to ever know, why do we gather on Sundays? Because this is a scriptural witness here. They're gathered on Sunday. And what do they do? They take communion, and Paul preaches. Now, I preach for 40 minutes, okay? We're going to try not to go over that for all of our study. But let's pick back up, and let's get to our example and exhortation, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now listen to this verse. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul's missionary endeavors are coming to a close. And Paul knows what awaits him in Jerusalem is, is imprisonment. The Spirit is testifying in every city. And we'll see that next week, how specifically the Spirit is testifying. Paul knows, I'm not going to see you guys again. He had spent 24 years, 22 years, preaching the gospel, planting these churches, building them up. But now he knows, I'm not going to see you guys again. So what does he do? In his farewell address, the first thing he does is he reminds them of his example. He reminds them of his example. Look at verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. The example that the churches had in the Apostle Paul was an example of service. This word here in, in the Greek, in our text, serving, serving the Lord is doulo. That's the root word for the word doulos. So in, the, in all of Paul's epistles, when Paul writes to a church, he introduces himself and says, I, Paul, a servant of the Lord. That word is doulos. It's the word slave. But in this instance, it's not a slave because of forced subjection. Like nobody is forcing Paul to serve. Instead, it's a service or a, or a slavery out of willful submission. It's this understanding that I am losing anything that is mine, any self-interest that I may have, just to serve the interest of somebody else. And that's how Paul constantly identified himself. He could have called himself a thousand different things, but what does he call himself? A servant. The example that Paul left the churches was a life of service. Look at verse 19. And he served the Lord with all humility and tears. One of the things I think we miss when we just kind of read through the narratives of Scripture is just how much emotion Paul put into his love for these churches. Like he loved them. Like we read them, you know, we read about Sopater the Berean, you know, and all these names you can't say, Aristarchus and Secundus, but like 
These were people in Paul's life. These were deep relationships that he had to the point where he would write to the Thessalonians something like this. And this is a, this is a passage I pray often for my own heart as I get to pastor this church. It says, we cared for you. And because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our own lives as well. Paul wasn't just preaching. He wasn't preaching at people. He was inviting people into his life. He shared his life with them. That was the example he gave. Even to the point in Galatians 4 and 19, and, and some of the mothers may scoff at this. Paul would write this about his churches. He says, my little children, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's agony, isn't it? Agony. I mean, just thinking about the maturity that he wants to see in his churches, he's saying, I am in anguish until that maturity takes place. Y'all, Paul loved these churches. And that love drove a life of service, a life of humility in service, a life of tears in that service. But his example wasn't just a life of, of serving. It was also a life of suffering. Look at the end of verse 19. With tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I don't know how many months we've been following the Apostle Paul, but, but that's what we've seen over and over and over again, right? He's been faithful to the preaching of the gospel, and in response, he's been consistently rejected and consistently persecuted. Paul would write his own sufferings, about his own sufferings, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And just, just listen to this list. Listen to what Paul has gone through as he has worked through the agony of childbirth in, in these churches. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. And apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. As we've walked the last several months, we've seen this time and time again. Paul suffered. That's a great resume builder, right? I, I always thought about that. You know, when, when churches ask for resumes, I wonder how many people include something like Paul did. Five times received 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods. I mean, this guy had a rap sheet of the sufferings that he had gone through. But y'all, when we look at the Apostle Paul's sufferings, what we should see is an example. Not just how to endure suffering, but how to live through suffering in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Because the way that Paul suffered actually demonstrates, as he would teach the Corinthians, that his grace is sufficient for all things. The way that he suffered actually shows that God's power is made perfect in weakness. The way that he suffers shows that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. That's from Romans chapter 5. When we look at the suffering of the Apostle Paul, y'all, it leaves us with an example. So in his suffering... And in his service, Paul was an example that, that built up these churches, strengthened them until he was departing. But let me give you a couple of more. As we walk through this, we, we also see he was an example from, by the things that he lived in terms of speaking. The things that he preached. We should learn from the Apostle Paul how to love God with, with the words of our mouth. Look at verse 20. He didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. In his second missionary journey, he spent 18 months in the city of Corinth preaching night and day. As he would say here, sharing the whole counsel of God in verse 27. In Ephesus, Coleman shared it last week, he spent three years in the city of Ephesus doing the same thing, 
teaching all that is profitable, trying to build them up. You know, and what's crazy, we have all his teachings here. He's written them for us. These teachings can still build us up as we can continue to study them and apply them in our lives. But we also know that Paul's teaching wasn't just profitable. It, it was public. It says he was teaching in public, and it was private. This is verse 20, teaching from house to house. Y'all, Paul would not go anywhere without teaching, without preaching. He was always sharing about the life of Christ with others. We also see that his sharing was for all people. Look at verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was no exclusivity here. Everyone was included in Paul's teaching. He preached to Jews. He preached to Gentiles. In fact, in Romans 1.16, he would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for both Jews and Greeks. Paul shared with all people. Finally, though, what I see in Paul sharing with his lips is, is he always shared about the person of Christ. Verse 21, he testified both to the Jews and the Greeks of what? What was he testifying? Of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Since the day that man saw Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9 to the day he dies, he preaches Christ. Always preaching the person of Christ. So Paul's an example. Example by the way he lived his life. Example by the way he, he shared his life through the teaching of others. But there's one more thing I want to say about this. It's, it's why. Like why suffer? Why serve? Why consistently share so often and show, so frequently? Like what drove him? What was the motivation behind all this? Look at verse 24. Y'all, if there's a scripture, <coughs> excuse me, that I'd encourage you to memorize from the book of Acts, it's this one. This is Paul's why. <clears throat> but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Church, Paul is literally saying here, I value nothing. I don't value my life. I don't value my ease. I don't value my comfort. I don't value my finances. The only thing Paul valued was Christ. In fact, he would write it to the church in Philippi like this. Whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count all things for the, for the loss of all things. He's willing to suffer ev the loss of everything just so that he could be found in Christ. Y'all, that's an example. That's an example that we need in our lives. Someone who values nothing but Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what drove him. His example is worth following. His example is worth, worth uh, learning from. And Paul, as he's about to leave all these people, that's all he did. He reminded them, reminded them of his example. And church, here's a point of application for us. We, we all need this, don't we? Like we don't, we don't need just Paul's example or just Jesus' example. We need, we need other examples. We need people in our life that we can look to who have a life of service, who have a life of suffering in a way that demonstrates the glory of God, who have a life worth sharing. We need those people in our life because they stir us up. They build us up. They, they act us on towards, towards uh, strength in the faith. Jesus did this often with his, um, his disciples. We say as a family, more is caught than taught. You ever heard that phrase? When we think of a discipleship as Americans, usually what we think of discipleship as is a 12-week seminar, right, where we host some kind of a teaching, some kind of a lecture, and you come and sit in on it, and we, we share. We teach, 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 teach. The life of Jesus was more of a life of following just a life of imitating. More was caught from his disciples than taught. So when they saw his deep, rich prayer life, what did they do? 
hey man, will you teach us how to pray like that? When Jesus, a couple nights before he was betrayed, got on his knees and, and washed his disciples' feet, he asked them, do you know what I've done for you? So I've given you an example. Jesus was an example to his followers. Paul was too. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, hey, come and imitate me as I imitate Christ. Come and follow me as I follow Christ. Discipleship is as simple as just having an example. Having someone in your life, someone maybe a little bit more mature than you, someone a little bit in the season of life further along than you, that you can just learn from. More is caught than taught. But you know what that requires? Proximity. It actually requires relationship. And I think we prefer 12-week program and, and seminars because it's just cleaner. It fits our schedules a little bit better. It's just a little bit more convenient. This type of discipleship, this type of example is totally not convenient. Because you need to have people in your home while you're putting your kids to sleep. Anybody have a peaceful moment when you're trying to put your kids to sleep? If so, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to get some, some you know, blessings. It's not, it's not convenient, y'all. But we need it. We need these type of examples in our life. We need these type of relationships. It's why, it's why people like that counseling couple I referenced earlier are so dear and important to Annie and I. These guys have, have lived it and lived through it. In fact, this weekend, he was an example to me. He didn't even know it. More is caught than taught. He wasn't trying to teach me anything. I just caught on to it. Let me tell you what happened. So he's been in ministry for 40 years. He leads this counseling service, and he went and met with his accountant, and the accountant said, hey, uh, I'm going to go get some coffee for us. When I get back, I want to talk retirement. He said for 10 minutes, he just sat in the room trying to process what was going on in his heart when he heard the word retirement. This guy's in his upper 60s, been doing this for a long time. He said he's just trying to process. And y'all, the whole time he's telling me this story, he's telling it as like a joke upon himself, like pretty much trying to make fun of his age and how he's getting older. But when I, caught, I caught way more than that, okay? So he's sitting there processing what's going on in me when I heard this word retirement. He said the accountant came back in, and he said, I just had to look at him and say, hey, man, um, I don't, I don't ever plan on retiring. In fact, I'm going to die with my boots on. And he said this with tears in his eyes. And then he starts making fun of his age and joking about it. And I just was floored by that statement. This man, 40 years, he just spent a month in Asia. He's about to spend a month in Africa just grinding all through trials, all through suffering. If anybody were worth just retiring, going to a beach and living it for the rest of his days, I would think he deserves that. And he said, I've never even, I've never even considered that. And that phrase, I don't think I'll ever lose it. I just want to die with my boots on. Although joking, he serves as an example to me. And church, we all need examples. We, we, we need people who live a life of service, who live a life of suffering, who live a life of, of preaching Christ, who live a life that values Christ speaking into our lives. But church, we also need to become examples like we need to be in process. We need to grow to the point where we are now investing into the lives of others. Y'all, I, I have the privilege of just knowing so many of you, knowing so many of your stories. And y'all, so many of you have walked through the trials of life, walked through seasons of life, and you've come on the back end of them with a deeper love and faith in Jesus. Don't waste that. Like, don't throw that away. Invest it. Pour it into other people. We need it. I know many of you look at your lives, you look at your health, maybe you look at your age and you just kind of think, you know, it's just, it's coast. It's just coast on me. Let me just point you to Acts 20, verse 24. Don't count your life of any value, nor as precious to yourself. Finish your race. Testify to the gospel of grace. Die with your boots on. 
invest into others. We need examples. We need to become examples. So here's a couple tangible takeaways for you from this point. If you do not have an example in your life, if you're sitting there going, man, we're trying to figure out this marriage thing, we're trying to figure out this parenting thing, how do we disciple our kids? What does this look like? I want you to own inviting someone to speak into that. Coleman and I get emails all the time, um, people asking for for discipleship, people asking for mentorship, people asking us to place others. And as much as I would love for my full-time job to be matchmaking, I would much rather you own something. Think in your mind right now, who's somebody that I've met in this church that I think can invest in me, that can share something with me? Y'all, it doesn't have to be, hey, meet with me weekly for this cup of coffee for the next six years. No expectations, no ties to it. It can literally mean, hey, can I just take you to lunch, share what's going on in my life, and just invite your, your voice into that. That's as simple as it can be. And then all of a sudden, a relationship is formed. And discipleship is occurring without you even knowing discipleship is occurring. You didn't have to sign up for a program. Isn't that great? So own that. Who are your examples? Own that. Another tangible takeaway, y'all, who are you an example for? And it doesn't just have to be our gray heads. I love you, gray heads. But Paul tells Timothy, right? Paul tells Timothy, be an example. Set an example for all the believers. It does not have to be an age-based thing. This is all about living a life that is a value of Christ. Who are you an example for? If you are not investing into somebody else intentionally, I want to encourage you, start praying. Start praying for God to put that person on your mind, on your heart. Go towards them. Do that awkward thing where you just walk up and go, hey, I'd love to take you to lunch someday. I'd love to to invite you to coffee. I'd love to have you over into our home one day. I'm aware of many of those relationships that are already happening within our church. Y'all, it is birthing beautiful fruit beautiful fruit for the kingdom of God when we live our lives as examples for others. Okay, I got a little long-winded. Let's pick up verse 28. We saw the example, now let's look at the exhortation. Verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Then he reminds him once again of another example he said. He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were, were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So after Paul reminds these church leaders of his example, he then begins to exhort them. Again, Paul can't go anywhere without preaching. He's got to give a couple points, and he gives three exhortations. Let's look at verse 28. The first one is this, pay careful attention to yourself. It's the first exhortation he gave them. Pay careful attention to yourself. Y'all, spiritual vitality and growth in Christ is never neutral. Right? It's either for or it's reverse. For him or against him. Can we be honest about how easy it is to just slip into apathy in our relationship with God? Like go to church on Sunday, go to grow group on, on Wednesday, and then next week we'll just rinse and repeat. And next week we'll rinse and repeat. And all of a sudden it's just, it just becomes robotic. It becomes going through the motions. Like, am I the only one? Can we all agree that that happens? Like, it's just so easy to slip back into that. 
Paul would tell you, hey, pay careful attention to yourself. When's the last time you took a spiritual assessment of your relationship with God? Emphasis on relationship. Just as we learned this week through the exhortation of others at that marriage retreat, it's a relationship. And that requires intentionality. That requires investment. That requires time. It requires all of these things. And so does your relationship with God. Y'all, apathy is always knocking. Nonchalance, going through the motions, all of those things is always present as a temptation in our life. God actually told the people of Israel this, Isaiah 29, verse 13. He said, because this people, they draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That can be true of all of us at times, isn't it? Singing the lyrics on the song, praying the prayers, listening to the sermon, even taking notes, whatever that looks like, it's so easy for us to go through the motions, yet our heart be far from God. Oh, it's a relationship. It requires investment. And the first thing that Paul exhorts these leaders is pay careful attention to yourself. And let me just say, if you're in that season, like if you're in a place where, where I just kind of feel apathetic in my walk with God, you know what is really helpful in a season like that? An example. Someone that takes you to lunch, takes you to coffee and go, hey, what's going on in your life? And you honestly answer and go, man, I'm just kind of apathetic. I'm just kind of going through the motions right now. And then let that person speak into your life. Nothing has jump-started my walk with God like sitting down with someone like Nathan, that man that I just referenced, who makes a statement, I want to die with my boots on. All of a sudden, I'm just amped up and jacked. I'm just ready to get back to Richmond Hill so I can preach again. I felt that. Nothing can stir us like an example. So maybe that's what you need this morning. Second exhortation he gives them, though, is once again in verse 28. Pay careful attention to self and to all the flock. All right, so specifically, he's speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, those that are responsible for the ruling and the shepherding of the church there in Ephesus. But this applies to all of us. Biblically, we are all commanded to care for one another, to pay attention to others. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member of the church suffers, all suffer together. Y'all, we've got to look out for each other. Again, we are all prone to apathy. We're all prone to backsliding. Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that's leading you to fall away from the living God. So what's the remedy for that? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. James says it this way in James 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So let me just ask you, is there somebody in your life that you see just sliding, beginning to fall away, beginning to grow more and more apathetic or more and more distant from their relationship with God? Man, I just want to encourage you, go towards that person. But do it in the way that Paul would do it. Like follow his example, right, with humility and with tears. Like Jesus would say, maybe look at the log in your own eye before you start running towards the speck in your brothers. We're not coming to anybody judgmentally. We're not coming to anybody pridefully. We're coming humble with love and going, man, I just have noticed. But is everything going on? What's, it's okay. What's going on in your life? How's your marriage? How are your, your relationship with your kids? What does that look like? And then exhort them, come back. Let's study together. Let's pray together. I, I, Y'all, I cannot tell you how much that means to somebody who is floundering. We've got to take this seriously to care for one another. And y'all, this exhortation 
that Paul gives to these church leaders, it, it turned to be way more prophetic than even Paul probably could have understood. Look at verse 29. He's saying, this is why you need to care for each other. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? Why are they speaking these twisted things? To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember my example. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. There are false teachers. There are people wanting to tempt you, to pull you away from your relationship with God within the church and without the church. So outside and inside. That's what Paul says. He says, be alert. It's coming. And what really encourages me is that these elders listened to him. Like they heard him. They took it seriously. Because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, this is what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false teachers. Y'all, they heard. They heard Paul's exhortation. They took it seriously, and they were living on alert. And I pray, as we think about the leaders of our church here in CBC Richmond, I pray that this would be true of us too. Pray that we would live lives that are alert, looking out for our church. Let me give you one more. Ultimately, as Paul's leaving them, as he's bidding farewell, as he knows he'll never see their faces again, ultimately what Paul does is he entrusts them. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, I'm leaving I'm in anguish over you. I want you to be built up. I want you to grow in Christ. So what does he do? He says, I entrust you to the grace of God. Y'all, it's God's grace that builds us up. On February the 19th, I, I preached a sermon based on Acts 14 that talked about the grace that strengthens. Right? We're all familiar with the fact that we're saved by grace. But y'all, we have got to grip this fact that we are also built up by grace. It's God's grace that helps us to grow. And in that sermon, this is what I said. I said, grace is not only the inclination of the character of God. You know, he sits on a throne of grace. That's just who he is. But grace is also a force. Remember that, Star Wars fans? Okay. That was that sermon. It's a force that works in us to change our capacities for work, for suffering, for obedience, and simply put, to follow Jesus. Grace saves sinners. Grace strengthens saints. An author wrote this about grace. It says, grace is not only needed for the occasion of conversion, it is required for the long, tiring season of cultivated grace that follows. By grace we set out, by grace we are sustained. Grace has as much to say about endings as it does about beginnings. Church, it's God's grace. It's being entrusted, it's submitting yourself to the grace of God that will build you up. It's not just an example, it's not just an exhortation, it's, it, it's grace. I've had... Someone just last week asked me, well, we, we have a lot of suffering within our church. We have a lot of pain. We have a lot of brokenness. I would argue that all of us, to some degree, are in that position. And y'all, I have the privilege and the honor as pastor to hear a lot of those stories, to be invited into the pain, to be invited into that suffering. And you know what's the hardest part about all that? I can't do anything to fix it. I can't fix. I can't heal. I can't cure. I, I, I can't repair. And sitting and listening to these pains and listening to these stories, I'm, I'm constantly aware of how helpless and powerless I am to really do anything. 
And somebody asked me, well, what do you do with that? Like, how do you move past that? Okay, well, I don't know, because I've been doing it for eight months, okay? Figuring it out, kind of as we go. That's the best way to learn how to swim, right? Let's fix my plan. But I can promise this. In eight months of being pastor, I have grown in my conviction that the grace of God can. God's grace can fix. It can heal. It can cure. It can take something that is dead and make it alive. It can take something that's old and make it new. It can take things that are broken and make it beautiful. I have seen that over and over and over again. What Paul is doing is an example for me. That when I hear these stories and I'm invited into this pain, what I need to do, what we need to do with each other is entrust each other to the grace of God. Because God's grace will build you up. Look at verse 36. So after Paul had done all this, after he reminded them of the example, after he had given them the exhortation, after he entrusted them to grace, after he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. They would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's leaving. Paul's not going to see these guys anymore. His missionary endeavors as it regards the book of Acts is now coming to a close. What awaits him and what awaits us over the next eight chapters of the book of Acts is imprisonment, is trial, standing on trial, is him giving his defense of his ministry. But all throughout it, we're going to continue to see his example. We're going to continue to hear his exhortation. And ultimately, we're going to continue to see him entrust himself and others to the grace of God. Let me pray for us. Father, so, so thankful for the example that we have here in the Apostle Paul. As we've seen over the last several months, really since January, of what it looks like to live sold out for you. For someone to really value you above all else and the incredible fruit of that ministry. We have a great example in the Apostle Paul. But God, more than anything, I'm reminded of of your grace through his life. That man hated you. That man hated the church. That man hated Christians. And yet one glimpse of you, one encounter with you, one moment of hearing your voice radically transformed and changed forever. Thank you for your grace, for the grace that saved Paul. Thank you for the grace that he preached. Thank you for the grace that he demonstrated. And thank you for the grace that continues to build us up. I pray that you, God, by your grace, would build each of us to be examples for others. That we would live lives of service, of suffering, and of sharing. That we would preach Christ publicly and privately to all people. And that we would live lives that are worthy to be followed as we attempt to follow you. And we need your grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.